know, there are some things that I used to enjoy saying that I don't feel as good about saying anymore. And one of them, I, I just caught myself because you know what I used to love saying? I used to love saying, hey, hey, hey. And the reason I used to love that was because that was my best impression of Fat Albert from the cartoon show that I watched on Saturday mornings as a kid, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. And you've already just figured out why I don't feel as comfortable. Cause yeah, that was Bill Cosby. That was his character. And I loved that guy. And, and I knew the song, like, you know, cause the song that, Hey, Hey, Hey was the beginning of like, you know, the song and, you know, I'm going to, you know, we're going to sing a song for you and Bill's going to tell you a thing or two, you know, and they, and then they would, they would have the show. And then at the end, Bill would come on in real life and he would explain what it meant and a life lesson and all that stuff. And there was so much good stuff there. And I just hate it. I hate it when people do stuff that makes it impossible for you to just enjoy the stuff that they made. Yeah. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to get into it. I'm just saying, I just wish I could just say, Hey, 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 and not worry about it. But you know, what I was basically trying to say is, hi, I'm glad you're here. Especially because I've got like, what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation between me and my new friend, Jenny McGrath around a subject that either you know nothing about, which is evangelical Christian purity culture and the way it screwed up a lot of our sexualities, or you know way too much about because you were in there with us. But either way, I think you're going to find this to be a really interesting conversation. But before we get to it, I just got a little bit of housekeeping. A couple things. Um, one is there are these two events that I often speak at every summer. Um, one is NanoCon which is this lovely one day conference put on by the Nashville nuns. It's a bunch of Sunday assembly types and lovely people that pull together all these people around the South for a day with it. And they, this, they have great speakers coming this year. Dave Warnock's going to be there. Who's been on the show. There'll be a lot of really kind of neat speakers there. Cool stuff. Anyway, if you want to get in a space where you're going to meet a lot of nice people like us, that's a place to go. It's in, uh, it's just outside of Nashville, Tennessee on July 30th. Before that, there's this other event that I often speak at called the Wild Goose Festival. And like, I got to give you a little bit of an asterisk on this one. Like, it's a wonderful event, but it's, it's organized by like very progressive Christians. You know, the kind of people that are still singing the songs, but they probably don't even believe any of the supernatural stuff anymore. If you, if you're fed up with evangelical jerkiness, like this would be the conference to go to where you would meet the nicest people and you'd go like, oh, there are people who believe in God that are so lovely and so open and so refreshing. Um, these are those people. So that's July 14th through 17th. For, for at least a handful of the people in the humanizing audience, it would be a great place to go. All right. The other thing I want to tell you, the other housekeeping thing I want to tell you is we're starting to do some good stuff on Patreon, like we've got this newsletter that's just for the Patreon people. I write a newsletter every month. I put a lot of time into it. If you wanted to get the newsletter, like it might be worth a buck a month, which is the lowest sponsorship level you can do. You know, 12 bucks a year. It might be worth it to you. We, we, we've, we started posting a bonus episode every month there where John and I kind of get on and reflect on the work that we're doing. And like in this last one, we reflected on the feedback we got from the episode with Vanessa and we talk about body image and we talk about comparing ourselves to other people and the nature of stories. 
And we do a few listener emails there too. It's kind of like uh, the people that are on Patreon that have heard the, this first episode immediately wrote and said, that was like, it was kind of like getting behind the scenes and like, and, ha- and just being in the let's put the podcast together conversation, which is appropriate because the people that support through Patreon are the people that are you know, like, I mean, I love it that we have thousands of listeners, but the hundred, uh, what I love even more is that we have 120 people that are like, they're putting the show on with us but it would be fun to have you on the team. So there's that. All right, now, I got this conversation to share with you um, between me and Jenny McGrath. And the one thing I want to say is, is after this conversation's over, I'm going to come back on for the outro and I often do a quote by Ingersoll or something like that. I've got a quote that's not by Ingersoll, but I think it like, it. I couldn't work it into the conversation with Jenny, but it's just, it's such a great quote and I don't know if I'll ever find another place to use it. I think you'll be rewarded if you stick with us. But before that, this is me and Jenny McGrath. Now, Jenny is a, a like me these days, she's a mental health therapist. She's a, she's a licensed mental health counselor, but she's also a movement educator. She like yoga-ish kind of stuff. She specializes in religious trauma and sexual abuse. And, and as you'll find out on this show, she really specializes in trying to help women who got messed over by the purity movement um, in the 80s and the 90s when I was plying my trade as a youth pastor. In fact, Jenny probably came to some, some conference that I spoke at. Uh, she grew up in Colorado Springs, which is kind of like the epicenter of that kind of thinking. She got wrapped up in that movement and then she got blown out. And, 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 fig- you know, and, and like when she walked away, she has made it her life work to help deconstruct and research the impact of all of that stuff on individual bodies and on larger communities. And she helps a lot of people. And I think if you, if you stick with the show, if, if you know nothing about this purity culture thing, it'll be fascinating to you. If you were, were, were in that mess with us, it might be really helpful to you. Um, but either way, I'm really uh, pleased and proud to share a conversation with Jenny McGrath. And here we go. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. You grew up in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. So like, how old are you now? If you don't mind my asking. I don't mind. I'm 32. Okay. That's like literally you're just one year older than my daughter. Oh, um, nice. Who's also a therapist, by the oh, way. Oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so, so like I can sort of locate where you were in the world, but you know, and so, <laughs> and you grew up in Colorado Springs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, which only we insiders would understand, like, right. is like growing up in the Mecca of evangelicalism. Yes. Yeah. And I would say I kind of grew up in the inner circle of the inner circle of the inner circle. Where what, what, Was your dad a vice president with focus on the family or something? He wasn't. He did work for another Christian book publishing company most of my life. Um, and I was homeschooled most of my life. Of course you um, were. And so, yeah, very insular community. Um, 
you know, I did dance growing up. That was kind of my uh, community outside of homeschool, evangelical, fundamentalist Christianity. But other than that, um, that was my entire world uh, for still what was most (laughs) of my life at this point. It's so funny. At one point I was working on a book deal and I went to Colorado Springs to meet with the executives and we were at lunch in a restaurant and the waitress said, can I get you, can I get anyone a drink? And without missing a beat, the one guy, the guy I was with looked at her and said, no, ma'am, we're evangelical Christians. We don't drink in front of each other. And, and, and you know, there's this whole thing of like, no, we're so uptight. Like, even if we do anything, yeah. we would never do it in front of each other. It's yeah. very telling. So these days, you're a therapist. Yes. And if I'm understanding right, in your private practice, you work with a lot of victims or traumatized people coming out of evangelical Christian purity culture. Right. Yeah, I do. Mostly I work, women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, predominantly with white cisgender women who also experienced uh, purity culture and virginity pledges and how much the emphasis on evangelicalism was on bodies and sexual restraint and gender roles. And so primarily in my practice, I help my clients discover what it means to have a relationship with their body. Uh, Most of my clients, as with my own journey, is one of dissociation, where there's been a lot of disconnect from the body, from sensations, from just feeling real because of the trauma of religious sexual shame and just religious trauma in general. Yeah, and and let alone... I was taught that my body was a thing other than me and that I wasn't fully associated with it. Right. But this, the disassociation you're talking about has, is, it, it sounds like it's much more akin to the disassociation that a victim of violent trauma goes through. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. kind of a, it's kind of a coping mechanism. Like, I, I, I can't deal with what's happening here. So I'm like, I'm not with this body. I'm not this body. Right. Yep. Thankfully, there's more and more research being done into that. I'm actually part of a purity culture research collective of various scholars and therapists looking at this issue because I am. Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers talks about in her book, Sex God and the Conservative Church that it really is traumatizing to be indoctrinated for your whole life into these messages that your body's bad, your body's dangerous, your body's gonna cause your brothers to stumble, your body is essentially connected to Eve's body, so you're responsible for the fall of mankind. Like all of these things that are put on us by the time we're even cognizant of what the world is, it really doesn't create a hospitable relationship with the body. And so even in cases where there haven't been large capital T explicit trauma events, the long-term chronic stress of purity culture and indoctrination into dogmatic religion 
actually has the same impact on our mind-body connection as a trauma would. I'm just thinking about all the women I know who have the double whammy. Mm -hmm. And that is that they had the kind of institutional trauma you're talking about, where the culture sent them messages about their body and their worth and their, you know, what made them whole or, or, or what made them righteous. But then a lot, there's a, there's a pretty significant subset of those women who also got personally traumatized right. by an individual person who took advantage of them or, or somehow kind of harmed them in a very personal way. Like, do you have any sense of what's the ratio there? Oh man. I, I mean, I would say that Venn diagram is nearly a perfect circle. What I talk about a lot in my work with clients or my classes or courses is that we can't separate our individual body and story from the collective body and story that we are a part of. Unfortunately, a lot of the messages within purity culture are um, harmful to people of all genders, but the way that it socializes folks who are socialized as men versus folks who are socialized as women is that they are out of control, that um, you know they just can't help but give in to their sexual urges. And so women are socialized to believe that it's their fault if they've been abused or if something has happened to them. And so often the hardest part is naming that abuse happened even when it did because there isn't a conversation in that world about consent. Um, and even when we talk about purity culture, I'm not only talking about evangelicalism because uh, George W. Bush really pushed for abstinence-only education, which was driven by purity culture. And so- well, Which was driven by evangelical purity culture, but he just wanted to spread it out to a, 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 right. broader, a broader swath of the, of, the, of the population. Right. And so in middle schools across America through the 90s and 2000s, there haven't been teachings about consent because the message goes- if you teach kids about consent, they're going to have sex. But if you're teaching abstinence, then they don't need to learn about how to consent. So there's no nuance where understanding of this wasn't my fault, I didn't do something because of the larger rhetoric that is talked about when it comes to bodies and responsibility and consent. You know, it's interesting too, it's just I knew the guy who invented True Love Waits, this Southern Baptist guy. And, you know, even then, even mm. though I was still in the movement, like, like, I think there were a lot of, like, there, there's something, there's something creepy about this. There's something really, this is not, this is not okay. Um, and he was so into it. He just thought it was the salvation of mankind. Um, yeah. But I grew up 20 years before that. But still, I grew up in a world in which, you know, Sex before marriage was so verboten, um, and and as a young man, I inculcated a lot of messages which we could talk about 
that were different. I want to talk about the difference between what the messages that the men and the women get. But one thing I know for sure is this, is that in the purity culture thing, if, if a man failed to be pure, if a man had sex, if a boy had sex, there was a sense in mm -hmm. which it was like, the devil made me do it. You know, it, it's my, it's the, these urges are, you know, were un uncontrollable. Right. And again, you could even sometimes blame the person you had abused, but whether you blame them or didn't blame them, there was no sense in which you were permanently damaged. You just needed to get up, brush yourself off and, you know, ask for forgiveness and start over. But for a woman, the way it was portrayed was you were permanently damaged. Right. You could be forgiven, but you could never be, you know, the gift you wanted to be for your husband on your wedding night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what's really important is to hold that purity culture that we talk about when we talk about purity culture in the 90s was a new wave of the purity culture that has been Christian nationalism in the U.S. all along. And so when I talk about purity culture, I'm talking about Christian nationalism. And this comes largely from research of Sarah Mosliner and Brad Onishi and others who have studied the really long history of evangelical white Christian nationalism and even when we talk about how men and women are socialized, I think it's really important to distinguish that w the subtext of that is the emphasis in purity culture is white men and white women. And we trace this back all the way to the time of enslavement and white women were seen as these pure, innocent victims, and women of color were often said to be hypersexual and lascivious, and that they that you couldn't rape a black woman because she always wanted to have sex. Yeah. And so the ideology and the rhetoric around purity has always used what I call the trope of young white women and how this construct of purity and innocence and then complete defilement happens within that framework and that narrative that always will keep white hetero cisgender men at the top of that system. Yeah. And it's no accident that the guy who invented true love weights was working for the Southern Baptist Convention and was, you know, I think he was in Alabama or Tennessee. I can't remember where he was from, but like it was a very Southern, right. uh, you know, rooted thing. Yeah. And and certainly the whole thing about consent was that, you know, because what the church was teaching me in youth group was that men are always wanting it and mm -hmm. will always push for it. And as a woman, you need to set the boundary because he can't control himself. Like I know as a man, I was like, I will never, ever force myself on a woman. And in every relationship I was in, women would eventually look at me and go like, is there something wrong with you? Are you gay? Like you, why won't you make a move? Like I'm sending you a thousand signals that I would like us to kiss right now. Right. And I was like, I was so intent not to be one of those guys. 
Yeah. And that screwed me up in another way. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The idea was you can never count on a man to, to, to not try to take advantage. So you, it's your responsibility to protect yourself from that. Um, yeah. And that was, and, and that's, a, and, and that created some real weird dynamics between men and women. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it creates these false binaries that, that don't leave room for nuance for folks who identify as transgender or non-binary. They grow up hearing these messages and wondering, where do I fit? Like, I don't even exist in this worldview. And so there, I don't think there is a body that comes out of that indoctrination not harmed. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if if you've touched on how the purity culture impacted young men. Um, but one of the th- places where I found it to be the most when I'm dealing with deconverted Christians is um, that the men were raised in an environment in which the primary focus of their sexual thought was don't look at porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't masturbate. Um, you know, cause a, a lot of these guys just, they weren't even in the dating game. Like, but, but like you're 13 years old and you're getting all these messages of, this is the this is the great problem, you know, the promise keepers movement and let's be accountable to each other and right. all of that stuff. And these people really come out with a very self-hating understanding because what they come to understand is, is that my sexual desire, like the fact that I want to look at a woman's body is in itself akin to having had sex with her. Right. Um, mm-hmm. it, I, I, you know, you've heard, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look with a lo- at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You right. know, it's the same. And, and, you know, we really took that seriously. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I, I personally, I personally took it so seriously that like the other verse I tied to it was, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And so when I was a 15 year old kid, I had a pen knife and every time I would masturbate, I would, I would put a cut on the back of my wrist to try to get me to go like, I'm going to stop this. And mm-hmm. if I don't, or I'm going to cut my hand off. Yeah. And that's pretty messed up. And, and it's such a logical conclusion for <laughs> what you were taught. It makes so much sense. It's in the Bible. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was actually having a conversation uh, with someone who is dear to me, who is a man who grew up in purity culture. And I won't say who, just for his own. <laughs> he hasn't consented to me sharing this, but... Um, we, he was actually talking about that verse and he's like, but now I read it and I think Jesus was just saying, this is just me saying that everyone has fucked up. So stop judging people like who've had adultery or who've done anything because like nobody is this perfect sinless person. Like everyone is just a human. And I was like, I really love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and bless his heart. I mean, those are the kind of sort of uh, hermeneutical uh, scriptural interpretation gymnastics that people do to try to stay in the game. And then you, do, do you go to college? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I Are you home colleged? I, I became a missionary right after high school. And who'd you go with? Youth with a mission. Oh, jeez. <laughs> 
for those of you in our audience, if anyone's listening to this conversation um, and you don't know why wham, um, that's, the, that's, what the, that's what the cool kids call it. That is, yep. And I mean, YWAM was different in different bases and different permutations around the world. But like in general, that was one of the most hardcore, we're going to change the world for Jesus oh, yeah. missionary outfits that there was. And they had a special Jones for Uganda. The whole evangelical world, like we had a special thing for Uganda. I'm not mm -hmm. sure why. Do you know why? Well, that's what my research is all about. <laughs> um, and my introduction, as well as the introduction to many young white women who became missionaries around the same time, was invisible children. Oh, my and gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, okay, you're going to have to explain what invisible children was. Yeah. So essentially, it was an organization that was started by three evangelical Christian white men uh, from San Diego, I want to say. Yep. They were San yeah. Diego. And they went to Uganda and made this incredibly um, emotional documentary, I guess you could say, although it didn't cover the history of why there was conflict in Uganda. It just covered that there was conflict in Uganda. And it really... Um, and there was an evil force led by Kony. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Joseph yeah. Kony, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Joseph Kony. Yep. Mm -hmm. And Evil so, man. And he was out there to get those children. Right. And, and we need to go save them. Yeah. And so the Invisible Children rallies actually really um, paralleled and mirrored a lot of the True Love Waits rallies where it was these huge emotionally moving things that then said, you can do something to change the world for God. And so my research is exploring the young white girls who were exposed to purity culture and then 10 years later were exposed to basically a call to instill, reinstill purity and innocence in northern Uganda. And so I saw the documentary when I was 14 and said, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And, oh, yeah. and, and, and I'm guessing almost if you were a girl in purity culture, tell me if I'm wrong, that, that, that like the subtext was, we're going to go there and re-virginize all these little girls that have been raped. And, and we're going to protect girls and we're going to get girls to stop giving their bodies away in this lascivious way. Like we're going we're gonna to bring purity to Uganda. Yeah, I, I think it wasn't as explicit as that. And, and the emphasis in Invisible Children, although they talked about like Coney having 11 wives that were young girls or things like that, the, the, the focus was mostly on young boys and child soldiers. And, but the rhetoric, it wasn't always sexual, but it was still in this message of these children have lost their innocence. They've lost yeah, okay. their purity. And so for those of us who knew what that meant, <laughs> there was this huge sense of urgency to 
quote unquote reinstill that sense of purity or innocence. But I think you're absolutely right that that was a huge part of the subtext and the the draw. I was there on and off for about five or six years. And 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 I know a little bit about where the story goes, but like at some point in those five or six years, your body started to tell you, we're not doing well. We're not, we're not, we're not handling this. Yeah. When, yeah. when, when was, was that, was that early in the time of Uganda or was it late? It was around, two, it would have been about two years okay. later. I came back for what I thought would just be a few months I had had a lot of health issues even in Uganda. I had boils for a really long time that were excruciating. Um, And then by the time I came back, um, I broke into shingles and my immune system shut down. I probably should have like maybe been hospitalized. I think I was not in a good place psychically or physically. Um, you know, in some ways, I think that it was because of the level of dissociation that I already had that I could be in situations in Uganda and not feel fear or not yeah. feel concern. Like I mm-hmm. think about, you know, I'm 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 very grateful nothing happened to me while I was there. I just really didn't have much connection to my body to be able to register when I felt safe or unsafe. And I think I also had this sense of if I'm in God's will, nothing bad's going to happen to me and, <laughs> and kind of this false sense of security. So, so you came back and, and, and your body just broke down. Yeah. Okay. And and at some point in this, you did hear somebody or or you got exposed to something that made you go, wait a second, this the system that I'm in might not be might not be the truth or might not be the right thing or might not might not be viable. What, who, what was what was your what was the first crack for you? What had happened was while I was on staff with YWAM, I didn't know at that point the long history of missionaries and slave owners perpetuating that myth that Ham was Black and that's why Black people were cursed and um, deserved to be enslaved and deserved to be in poverty. And so it really caused this identity crisis of what I had been taught about myself and what I had been taught about folks of color and how I very quickly and very early assumed positions of power and authority. You know, by the time I was 19, not batting an eye at teaching and trying to do therapy that I was not at all qualified Qualified. or capable of doing. Yeah. What's ironic is, is that you, you, you happily put on the yoke of power and privilege in that's in that scenario. And, and you just as happily put on the yoke of oppression and submission in the gender, in the gender deal. Mm -hmm. They, they, they take a story and they go like, that's why black people should always be oppressed by white people. And you go like, yeah. And they take another story and go like, that's why women are always subservient to men. Right. Absolutely. Yep. 
how how long does it take you to to switch from just questioning the colonial um, racial thing to going back to the gender or and and the sexuality and the purity culture thing? How how long does it take you to make that jump? Yeah, I think it was two very kind of separate um, experiences. Yeah, yeah, that ended up connecting. Um, and the other one was meeting my now husband at the time processing with my therapist about if it, if I was essentially going to go to hell, if I had sex with him before we were married and all of the weight that came with that decision. And so that helped me begin to unpack <laughs> these ideas, like these myths of virginity and, and these social constructs and that they too also had a history and had a past. And yeah. so the more agency and autonomy I was able to have over my own decisions and my own body, it also was very correlated to valuing the autonomy and the agency of bodies in Uganda and not assuming a role of power in the system that I'm a part of while also holding how I've also been disempowered in yeah. that system. Let's just pause here for a break. Oh, hi, this is Katie, one of Humanize Me's producers. Fun fact, Bart releases bonus episodes every month to supporters of the show on Patreon. These episodes are more personal, more relaxed, with insider tidbits, behind-the-scenes convos, and some deeper dives into why this podcast matters to people. Check out our options at patreon.com backslash humanize me. Thanks! Were, were you in therapy just because you were in grad school for therapy and they all had to go to therapy? Or, or did you did you go like, I, I, I need some therapy, I want to get some therapy? Yeah, Grad school was in part for me a way that I could get therapy. I knew I needed therapy. And in my worldview, in my family culture, therapy was not, not okay, was devalued. And I knew that therapy was a requirement for grad school. And so, at, at a conscious level, it was for the first three years. Well, I have to be in therapy because it's grad school. And then it became, I have to be in therapy because I need help processing through my work with clients. And then it became, okay, I can just own that I need therapy because I have a lot of experiences that have caused me to need to go to therapy. And the reason why I ask is because so many of the people that I know that are coming out of, you know, really oppressive faith situations, religious trauma, realize in, in the conversations that we're having that one of the real tricks of that culture was it convinced them that to think the thought or to articulate the thought even to themselves, let alone to another person, was the sin. And mm -hmm. so they... Like the idea that you would actually articulate to your therapist, I, I kind of want to have sex with this guy, 
you know, what do you like? And and like, but I'm, and you're processing that out loud. And I go like, wow, most of the people that I know that are trapped in that system never get in a conversation where they would admit that they just really want to have sex. I mean, they would joke about it, Mm -hmm. but they would never admit like, I'm actually considering having sex with this person. Like, what do you think? What's going to happen? Will I go to hell? What's, you know, just the fact that you're even in that conversation Because I think sometimes when you hear the words coming out of your mouth or when you make the connections in a real conversation, you go like, wait a second, this all sounds lunatic. But most of of the people I know that are processing this trauma are processing it completely alone and completely internally. That was only a possibility for me after three years of grad school. And three years. therapy. Yeah. And more than three years of therapy, probably. Yeah. It really is um, so imprisoning for people to think about, much less be able to ask someone, is this okay? Um, Am I going to go to hell if I do this? Uh, Is my value lost forever? And... Yeah, I mean, I, I very seldom, I very seldom start a conversation like this with, um, kind of like with a goal. You know, I'm just like, I want, I'm curious. I want to, mm-hmm. like, do you have something to teach me? But with this one, I found myself, I, I sort of like, I knew that you would help me with this. But I was, when when I think of the, the the, you call it disassociation or dissociation, and and I just think like the shame. Um, and the confusion, you know, the, the goal I had if, above all was just to normalize it because I feel like there's so many people out there that are going like, what is wrong with me? I don't even believe in God and I'm still terrified of going to hell or what is wrong with me? Like I, 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 I've been out of Christianity for five years and I still like, I still feel guilty for wanting to have sex or, yeah. or, 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 or I can't have sex. I have a lot of women that I know that have, and I, I always pronounce it wrong, but Vaginitis? Vaginismus. Mm-hmm. Vaginismus, that's it. Yeah. Incredibly and, common for women who grew up in purity culture. I don't know if anybody knows what that is. Can you can you give me a five second definition of it? Yeah. Essentially, you know, the vagina is a sphincter. It's a circle muscle. Vaginismus is sort of like a muscle cramp. Um, it's a spasm and a painful experience that can happen a lot of times with penetration, but I've also witnessed it a lot where even the thought of penetration mm-hmm. can create pain. And there's this phrase in neuroscience that says, what fires together wires together. And so if you have a lifetime of arousal, firing together with shame or pleasure, firing together with self-contempt. You can leave Christianity, but those neural pathways are so strong. And it takes so much time to, to uncouple and untangle what has been wired together. You're, you're not broken. Like this, make, this connection makes sense. Like people don't feel guilty when they have diabetes. People don't feel like they're letting down their partner when they have, you know, some other ailment that that is in their body. And and so I think for some people, 
it's really just important that they understand that what's happening in your head and in your your worldview has real physical consequences. And you didn't if you didn't choose what's in your head, then you also are not choosing what's happening in your body at that moment. Yeah, and it makes me think about, you know, a, a part of our body that I'm fascinated with is called our vagus nerve. And it's the nerve that tells us if we are safe or if we're in danger. Mm -hmm. And 80 to 90% of that nerve is sending signals from the body to the brain. And so sometimes we're not even consciously aware of how our body tightens or braces or constricts because of the messages that we've heard our whole life. And so it's... Not always just a matter of thinking differently. It really is a matter of tending to the whole body and the nervous system and creating spaces where people feel safe enough to be in their bodies. I think that that's the other thing is like we talk about tr- you know purity as like what you do. but but the other thing is there's this very implicit very explicit message about, I think what that what sex is for. And what it's not for. And I always got the impression growing up in church that sex was like for a man's pleasure and a woman tolerated it. And I remember that my goal was to like be a good enough lover that my wife wouldn't hate it. But the idea that she would actually have desire for it was kind of foreign to me. Absolutely. It makes me think about what you shared earlier, you know, and how boys are socialized to not masturbate or not look at porn. And often for teachings for girls, that's never even talked about. Like the assumption is that you don't have a sexual desire. You don't want to masturbate. So there's this void where there's a lot of shame for a lot of women who are curious about their bodies and you know even it, i'm thinking about how this is a little tangent but i've had a lot of feelings lately about freud and um and all of his messaging about the clitoral orgasm being an infantile orgasm and that the real true orgasm a woman would have is through vaginal penetration alone. And so the clitoris was even taken out of the Gray's Book of Anatomy. And for a really long time, there hasn't been information or education or emphasis on female sexual pleasure at all. It just is kind of like, that's a thing that doesn't exist almost. And so if if you have a sexual desire or if you have interest or desire for pleasure, that only tends to add to the shame. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's the, when people come out of these cultures, they're unacquainted with their own desires. They're, un, they're, they're, they're uncomfortable with the idea that they have desires and they, and, and they don't know how their bodies work. How do you help them? Some of it is just introducing folks to their body and to talking about 
what our nervous system needs in order to feel pleasure. Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, is just an incredible resource for anybody with a vulva who's interested in exploring and understanding desire. And I think there's this really important aspect to that where there's a couple types of desire where some people are what we'd call spontaneous or initiators of desire. They can get turned on at any time where a large percentage of female-bodied folks are responsive desire. So they might not have an arousal by looking at something or just a sense of like, I'm ready to go, but they might be able to get there through having moments of intimacy and connection and foreplay that bring them to that space. And so I think it's about just educating through the nuances and the complexities that there are as many versions of sexuality as there are bodies on this planet. Um, And it's okay if yours looks different than someone else's. You know, and we talk about hedonic tone a lot, which is your ability to tell what you like or what you don't like. And so an exercise I do a lot with folks is have them nod their head yes or shake their head no or shrug and just list off a bunch of things like, do you like pizza? Do you like bananas? Do you like jumping on a trampoline? And just like noticing how we all like and don't like so many different things and and just kind of asking why would sexual preferences be any different? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I knew this poet when I lived in Los Angeles, um, and she had this wonderful book called "Go Ahead and Like It," and mm-hmm. it was a lit. It was photographs of all these lists she had made of things that she had made them over years of things she liked, and she would be like, "Things wow. I like today, foods I like, um, y- y- like cars I like, experiences today I had that I liked," and she's and, and what she was. And she would encourage people to make similar lists. And her idea was, and, and it was, and her idea was liking things, expressing your enjoyment of something was just like genuinely healthy and would and would promote gratitude. That the more you expressed, like, I like this food, and 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 science would back this up, is that the experience of expressing gratitude for a thing enhances your enjoyment of the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was like, the more you notice what you like, the more you will enjoy what you like, and the more you will notice other things that you like. And so it sounds like that's a perfect exercise. Like we'll start with trampolines and bananas. <laughs> right. And we'll find a bunch of different weird stuff. And then I would imagine that at some point you sort of go like, do you like this? Do you like that? And, and you get more into visual and 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 um, sort of ex- somatic or experiential likes and dislikes. Yeah, and, and this is where understanding dissociation is so important because it's really common, especially for female-bodied folks who grew up in purity culture, to say, "I have no idea what I like." Um, like that's just whether it's sexual or not, like there's never been a category for me having preference or pleasure in life. It's always been 
focusing on someone else's pleasure or service or things like that. And so a lot of times it just includes simple breathing exercises and movement exercises to help someone come back into relationship with their body, you know? And I say, no one is born not knowing what they don't like, you know? The first thing we do is scream when we're cold or when we're hungry or tired. And, you know, like we know our hedonic tone in our nervous system, but we get conditioned and socialized to tune out of our desires and our preferences for good reason because of the messages that we've heard. You know, my wife, um, she got rheumatoid arthritis when she, when we were in our forties and for a while there, it looked like our days of being happy people were, were over, like that she was going to be in a wheelchair and she was going to be in excruciating pain forever. Um, and for about a year, like it was, it was all up in there and you know, we didn't have sex for that year because she, her just body could not tolerate anything. Mm. Um, she would barely walk half the time. And one of the things that her rheumatologist sent her to therapy and he said, look, I, I, I can't do anything about this disease. I mean, we can try to find the right medication, but like you've got rheumatoid arthritis. He said, but, but it's, it's definitely exacerbated by stress and that you could figure out like what's stressing you out. Mm. And so she ended up in therapy for the first time, you know, where she was willing to do it. And at one point she came home from therapy and she said it had been the most strange experience because at some point she was talking about her life and she was saying something about what I wanted her. And the therapist said, well, well Marty, what do you want? And she said that she realized in that moment that no one had ever asked her that question and that she had never asked it of herself. Like, what did she want to do with her life? <laughs> you know, she had been raised in a, in a situation where she was always serving the needs of other people, um, you know, and ultimately me at that point. And it was really weird. It was, it was really, it was really telling for me. I was like, wow, you know, like I would be part of the nobody that ever asked. Um, and so I think that, you know, long after we get done talking about like, did you let him go up your shirt or like, did you get to third base or did you actually have sex? And like long after we move away from like the, the, the specifics of the kind of sexuality that we were trying to control or, or that other people were trying to control in us, there's, there's a larger superstructure of desire that, that those things are a reflection of. And I think that for a lot of people, um, just because they have left behind weird supernatural belief systems and, and stuff, it doesn't mean that they have yet had anyone ask them, what, what do you want? What, what, what do you like? What, what feels good to you? Um, you know, what's, what, 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 what brings meaning to your life? What would it take for you to thrive? And I, I just, I guess I'm just, I'm just really grateful for, for the work that you're doing. Cause I feel like ultimately probably it sounds to me like a lot of people walk in to your, to your world, having not asked those questions and walk out much, much more deeply acquainted with, not just with how their vulvas work, but with, with how their emotions work. Hmm. 
Thank you. Likewise, I, I deeply honor and respect the work you're doing. And, you know, especially having been a public figure, I think it's really hard to own, yeah, I was really wrong about this. And, you know, I think it makes me think of like, you know, as we've been talking about this whole time, you can come out of fundamentalism but it's even harder and longer process to take fundamentalism out of you. And I see fundamentalism as that binary thinking and splitting and actually holding nuance of saying like, yeah, there was so much of this that was really harmful and difficult. And there were also really beautiful connections and moments and it's not either or and holding the both and is so complicated. All right, that was me and Jenny talking about all that stuff. I hope that we got to the emotional core. There's a part of me that just, I know I talked too much on that interview. Somehow I wanted to kind of get inside and what does it feel like to be getting crunched into an identity that isn't really who you are? What does that do to a person? How does that feel to a person? And as you feedback, we'll, we'll, we'll probably get a, 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 get a clue on this. And when we go to that Patreon only show, um, we'll probably talk about like, did we get it? Yeah. But I, I really appreciated, um, the opportunity to even try. And there's just not many people that are really thinking about the stuff the way Jenny is. And so that was, that was, that was cool for me. Hey, I, I promised you a quote and here it is. It actually comes from a book review by Peter Gordon, uh, he was reviewing a book by the philosopher Alex Honneth. Do I know Peter Gordon? I do not. Do I know Alex Honneth? I do not. But the quote, or rather the title of the review really stuck with me. It was called In Search of Recognition. And I'm just going to read you sort of my edit of the first few paragraphs uh, that I think is just so relevant to my life, to this show, to this episode, and maybe in some weird way to this moment in American political history. All of us need recognition. We need it from those we love, but also from the state if we are to enjoy our rights as citizens, and from society at large if we are to secure esteem for our achievements. In the absence of recognition, we languish, unloved and unseen, without legal protection and without the basic sense that we matter as human beings. Think, for instance, of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, in which invisibility becomes a metaphor for recognition denied. Quote, I am invisible, the narrator writes, simply because people refuse to see me. They see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me, unquote. Because he is denied recognition, he is robbed of the necessary conditions for a fulfilling life. Another quote, I am not only invisible, he says, but formless as well. And to be unaware of one's form is to live a death, unquote to live a death. 
Philosophers, psychologists, and theorists of social interaction have long understood that recognition is crucial to human flourishing. The idea that we can only be fully human if we are recognized by others is a central theme of the tradition of political thought that runs from Aristotle to Arendt, in which the political sphere is conceived not only as an empty stage, not as an empty stage for individual pursuits, but as a common realm in which we first appear to one another and find our completion as human beings. But the same recognition that we need from others, we also require from ourselves. If we refuse to recognize our own desires, they distort us from inside and we succumb to illness. Boy, when I read that, it so reminded me of, of the conversation with Jenny. Franz Fanon the psychiatrist and theorist of anti-colonial liberation, united these insights in his claim that our sense of human worth and reality does not exist prior to our social interaction, but is the consequence of social recognition. Just think about that for a second. Our sense of human worth and reality does not exist prior to our social interaction. It's not like inborn in us. It's not intrinsic to us, but it's the consequence of social recognition. That's how we learn that it's a thing, human worth and reality. Asymmetries of power, such as that between colonizer and colonized, will distort this recognition or render it inoperative, resulting in structural injustice and personal distress. And again, that, that's what I think happened with Jenny. There was an asymmetry of power between like the church and the leaders and the, the Christian hegemony and individuals like Jenny or me that were sort of growing up in that. And it distorts our, our recognition and renders it inoperative, resulting in structural injustice and personal distress. A truly just society would demand what Fanon called a world of reciprocal recognition. A world of reciprocal recognition. It, it, it's kind, that's kind of what we're after, isn't it? A place where people feel seen, they feel known, and where they see others for who they really are and know others for who they really are. A world where, where I, I know I'm recognized, I'm seen for who I am not crammed into somebody else's box or, or labeled in, in a way that doesn't really recognize the fullness of my individual identity. A world of reciprocal recognition. Yeah. That's what we're after. We're trying to, trying to really peel back the layers and figure out who we are so that we can become the best better versions of that so that we can grow so that we can learn from other, from who other people really are maybe that's maybe that's the main thing that we do maybe that's what love one way of talking about what love is is it's to look at a little child or or an old lady or somebody or or, or anybody and say i see you i recognize you i, I, I know what you're about I know why you're special. 
I'm not projecting onto you my surroundings or, or myself or, or my imagination. I, I, I'm seeing you. You're not invisible anymore. Maybe that's what it is to love somebody. It's to pull them out of the mass and, and, and see them individually and, and appreciate them for who they are and let them know that they are seen and appreciated that way. I, I'm going to stop now. I think this is a little bit about what we're doing. I think this is a little bit about what I want to do, what you want to do. I think it'll be fun to see you next time on Humanize Me. To hear an exclusive extra episode every month, please go to patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get Bart's monthly newsletter over there and get access to some great Humanize Me merch. Our supporters on Patreon are the ones making this show happen. For more information on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. Also, if you choose to listen to the podcast on Spotify, we have a listener poll that you can take part in every episode, including this one. So join us on Spotify. Humanize Me is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life. Thanks, John. Is there anyone else we need to thank? We do. We need to thank Diane H. Hey, Diane H. I, I, I think we would know more about you uh, if it wasn't just H, but we're still grateful for you. And we need to thank someone who calls themselves Dude. <laughs> what a... Wow. Dude. I guess when you... Look, when you sign up for Patreon, you don't need to give your real name. That's the other dude. thing we need to say. thank you. The, the, the dude abides... And yes, and and, the, and that this list of of patrons really uh, ties the podcast together. Yeah, yeah. We need to thank Ed Good. There are some great last names, aren't there? Yep. We yeah. need to thank uh, Garrett Lyle Lindahl. I like it. Thank you, Garrett. Thanks for being part of the show. And Hannah Payne. Hannah Payne. I, I you know, I, 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 and and Hannah, like, a, we are grateful. But B, like every woman that supports this podcast makes me feel a little less toxic. <laughs> we need to thank someone who could be male or female called HS. Initials I'm gonna assume only. I'm gonna assume that's a woman. I'm gonna assume it's Howard Stern. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> Thanks to Jay Chung. Thank you, Jay. And to Jason Shock. Almost as good a last name as good. And finally, for now, Jeff Emmerich. I love Jeff Emmerich and know him. And it's just, again, you know, to know him well is to not love him. Like, you, I worry about that. Like, that, 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 you know, so when somebody has actually known me a long time and still thinks the podcast is worthwhile, it feels like a, a, an incredible validation. Beautiful. Yeah. So thanks to all of you guys. Thanks, thanks to everybody. <laughs>